He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny. You are listening to the Crash Program. Hello? Crash Barry here. Lately, I've been mostly focused on chuds and other bad political types while I continue to research and write about the criminal clergy of Springfield, Massachusetts. Both can be very depressing topics, especially in these dreary days of late winter. That's why, for a change of pace, I was happy to record this interview with my very good friend, main rock and roll icon, and now Grammy-winning songwriter Dave Gutter. Dave won his first Grammy this year, co-writing the song Stomping Grounds for the legendary Aaron Neville. Dave was born and raised in Gorham and used Portland as a home base for almost 40 years for he and his musical comrades in Rustic Overtones, Paranoid Social Club, Armies, and many other permutations who have entertained hundreds of thousands across the globe. Dave and I became pals about a decade ago when he starred in my indie feature film Sex, Drugs, and Blueberries, which is about the Oxycontin abuse epidemic in rural Maine, which is based on my novel of the same name. Uh, Sex, Drugs, and Blueberries is about a failed rock star who moves to down east Maine and... Very quickly, things go wrong. Now, Gutter is no failed rock star. I'm very proud of my pal's musical accomplishments, and I wanted to talk about his career and his creativity. So, a couple of weeks ago, while he was in South Portland recovering and quarantining due to a mild bout of COVID, and I was in the foothills of western Maine, we both smoked some very, 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 very potent OG Kush cannabis, and then connected via Zoom. What follows is our wide-ranging, and for me, fun interview. Stay tuned at the end of the show to listen to High on Everything, the theme song of Sex, Drugs, and Blu-rays, which Dave wrote and performed with rustic overtones. Plus, we'll share the date and locations for Dave's summer gigs, and you can learn how you can support the Crash Program via Patreon and all the cool perks you can get by doing so. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share this episode of the Crash Program with your family, friends, and on your socials. And now, without any further ado, I present to you a conversation with Dave Gutter. So, what's COVID been like? It's been, uh, it's just been like a cold. That's what the symptoms have been like, but it's spread around like all kinds of people. Like we did some shows when we got back, um, from California. And then I, we think it came from Bangor because we were really up close with people shaking hands, giving hugs. I had just gotten back. You could have gotten it at the Grammys. Maybe I kind of, I kind of want to Google if any celebrities have COVID right now, then I could be like. Yeah, I got COVID from Harry Styles. <laughs> that would be a feather in my cap, I feel like. Did you hug Harry Styles? No, I wish. I didn't get near any celebrities because they were so deep with people around them trying to get to them that it was just like waiting in line for a ride. You're the celebrity. They couldn't get near you. Well, the one thing we did, I have a good story uh, about 
uh, the red carpet at the Grammys with me and Connie that you'll love. Great. Why don't you tell us? If you don't have an intro or something for your podcast? You just start talking? No, we're just talking. Yeah, okay. I am high right now. I mean, I just finished smoking. So I maybe I should just set the scene anyway. Yeah. Me and my 16-year-old daughter, first time ever, go to the Grammys. And uh, we feel like imposters there. And we're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I was nominated for a Grammy. And uh, we put on the tux. And she had the custom-made dress by a designer, all that stuff. We get there, win a Grammy. I was skipping way forward, but our category comes up. We win the Grammy. It's amazing. We go outside and ask somebody, which way is the red carpet? Uh, Because we just wanted to get a picture on the red carpet. So we walk to this area where this guy pointed to, and there's a a velvet rope and a security there. And they say, uh, let me see your passes. And I'm, you know, I'm high on life. I just won a Grammy and I show them the passes and they say, uh, sorry, you guys can't come in here. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just trying to go two inches inside the red carpet so we can take a picture to show people back in Maine. And uh, he said, nope, sorry, you need the, the black passes. Um, and so I say, uh, I've been playing music since I was eight years old in a small town in Maine. I'm 48 now. I just won my first Grammy. This is my 16-year-old daughter who I brought to the Grammys from Maine. I was like, we just want to take a picture in there. And he goes, tell that story to that lady over there. And I walked over and I told the same story to a lady sitting in a chair. uh, And she printed out two all-access passes, uh, after-party, everything for us, gave us full access like we were Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we walk into this but well we keep referring to it as it was like walking into a television um because everyone that was interviewing someone even the media people were famous uh and it was just we're at constantly at a crossroads and it's and it's jam-packed so you're running into people um and bumping into like celebrities that you know and they're rushing to go places but one of the things that connie and i did when we saw all the groups of people clustered around the famous people, we would avoid that. We would look for the paparazzi running. We would see paparazzi start running somewhere and be like, let's go, let's follow them. (laughs) So we were like, we were the imposters in there and we were just trying to like fit in and play it cool. But we would follow the action wherever uh, the paparazzi went. And when you followed them, you definitely always came to like, you know, Trevor Noah or Beyonce or someone, Taylor Swift or something. That's just so funny. And I mean, first of all, you know, I love your daughter. She's so awesome. She's like the best kid. I've, I've told her this and you this. And I, I don't like kids. I love her because she's smart. She's so cool. And you've had a pretty crazy life. And the fact that you guys were able to share that experience, so beautiful, right? I mean... It kind of makes up for all the time that you were on tour. Exactly. Yeah, it, it validates um, any struggle that I have had to endure. And and also my family has to endure those struggles. And um, it makes it definitely seem like it's not all futile. Wow. You know, that it was for something and that uh, there there is a value to the work that I put in. Because, you know... That, that happens to a lot of us in, in Maine. We're removed from uh, really the capitalism of our art. You know, we don't, um, 
we're not wheeling and dealing as much as people in Los Angeles and New York and stuff. So um, to just have our art get out there on its own and, and get this kind of like national or international recognition is like, okay, that's why I was staring at the wall, trying to come up with an idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? That Totally. It's such a good positive reinforcement for you personally. I too, because dude, I've watched you for years. It's crazy how hardworking you are in a world of hard workers. And you just work all the time. It's 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 rare for you not to be doing something. Th this is the thing. <laughs> I'm just so proud of you. Oh, thanks, man. Okay. I, it's like a couple times I feel like I'm going to start crying. Look at me, right? Oh, there's been lots of tears. The The, the corner store where I buy cigarettes every day. Uh, the the ladies I see there every day is when I got back, I went to buy cigarettes and they started crying and then I started crying and it just keeps happening places. And it's like a really beautiful feeling because uh, this wouldn't have felt this way if I had gotten it when I was 23 and I was signed to Clive Davis and we had a big hit that year. Totally, totally. It's like I have something more significant than that now. I have a story. Yeah. Like I have a journey and people have been on that with me and they connect to it and we feel like we're one community. And like I, I can't imagine wanting more than that as being any kind of artist. You know what I mean? Well, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead here. So after you won the Grammy and then there is all this uh, social media hubbub, tons of stuff on the socials, right? What struck me is... How many people would talk about a personal experience they had with you that had like a lifetime impact, whether that be a song or a show or you hanging out, talking to someone after a show or you get high with somebody or you, you know, sharing your new music with somebody just like from all over the spectrum, from many different ages, because we think about it, the people your your parents' friends that had you in the band when you were a little kid, like that whole thing. We're going to jump around here, obviously. This is going to be like a Joe yeah. Rogan interview. We're both high. <laughs> you don't have anywhere to go, right? I've got you for as long as I need you because you have COVID. Um, <laughs> but so let's go back in time, like really far back in time when you were a little boy and like you were doing, if I'm remembering this correctly, like shows at a country club or something like that that your mom and dad booked. What was that? Oh, yeah, I did all kinds of super weird shows uh, when I was super little, um, like even like 10 uh, okay. at like my parents, uh, they, they would have a birthday party for like their 80 year old grandmother and my band would play at it and we're by, at like Hannaford supermarkets that were called Shop and Save. They would have like a uh, a sale, a barbecue sale or something. And it set us up on a flatbed with like bales of hay and have us play music. Um, <laughs> uh, John's dad worked at a chain of restaurants called Deering Ice Cream. Yep. And they would have grand openings. They were a new company and they were starting to franchise. So every time there's a grand opening of this ice cream place, we were the band that did the, uh, the grand opening. <laughs> it was like really strange gigs. Was that uh, the, the aces, aces wild or was that rusty? Yeah, that was aces wild. That was aces wild. And that was you, John roots. And was that Matt was who, who else was in? Yep. Matt Esty. Love that guy. Yeah. We're a trio. I think we've had a conversation about this before, but just set the stage. The year was 1993. 
Rustic Overtones is a brand new band. You're still in high school, right? 93? Yeah. Yeah, we graduated in 93. There was the Gorm Days Parade. You were on a flatbed truck and a young buck reporter, <laughs> Crash Barry. Yes. Working for the American Journal on the sidelines, took the photo, which I do believe is your first real media appearance in the American Journal. Yeah, thanks for that. I think we were like bales of hay and they're like like cut cut out pigs and stuff. It was like we we're in a barnyard. <laughs> then the other thing from that period that I remember is um your dad come into my house. I'm a reporter for the American Journal. I don't know you guys, right? And back then we had phone books, right? So it's like you could look up the phone book. Somebody's address was right there. So your dad comes, knocks on my apartment door at 88 State Street in Gorham, right next to the funeral parlor. Yep, I know where that is. Okay, right downtown there. I open the door, and it's your dad, and he gives me a cassette tape, <laughs> tickets to a show at a campground, and like a press release for it, right? And I just brought it to work. because like, this band, this band of kids in Gorham, right? So anyways, that, that's when you first came on my radar, right, 93. But then we didn't become friends for, for 20 years later. Like, I think I knew of you. I mean, obviously I knew of you. I have many rustic experiences. We have other mutual friends we're going to talk about in the band, things like that. But, like, you and I didn't become buddies until 10 years ago. And that was that was probably for the best. I think we would both be dead and not here right now if we had met each other in those years. <laughs> it's true we would have been so much trouble if we'd gone together back in the day when i was still doing more like active on the road investigative stuff i would have ended up going going on tour i would have been with you guys when you guys would have like a dollar fifty a day in food right can we go back to those days when uh no it was three dollars oh, three dollars a day yeah it's three dollars a day per okay. man yep okay so what would you spend your three dollars on uh Sometimes a, a watermelon. Um, you could get frozen like ice cream sandwiches um, sometimes for that, like a big box of them and maybe some crackers. Uh, we hardly ever got, I mean, other than the watermelon, we hardly ever got like healthy foods. And I used to get fed up with a, with a per diem at $3. And I used to shoplift a lot. Uh <laughs> And get a lot of my food uh, from little Debbie, but I used to I used to do like big shoplifting too, where I would go to the, um, like the storage room of the hotel when we checked out, and I would go in and I'd grab like a big, uh, you know, box of crackers or or whatever <laughs> or cookies, and I'd throw them in the van before we left, and Dave Noise would would see that. And he would be very angry at me for stealing the big, you know, giant industrial box of of cookies. But he would always break down and eat the cookies. Uh, he would stick to his guns for a little while. And then it'd be like, fine, give me one because we'd be so hungry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk more about our beloved Dave Noyes a little later. But back to that time period, that was very hard scrabble. And yeah, you guys were on the road a lot. Like it felt like it at least. Like you were always on the road, going places uh, that maybe you weren't even known at all, right? Some of those. Oh yeah, weren't weren't even wanted. <laughs> We'd show up places. They'd be like, "What? There's a band. This is a like a salad bar. Like back when like salad <laughs> bars were like all the rage. We'd end up in a corner of some salad bar, and 
and we were just trying to fill a date. If we're going from like North Carolina to South Carolina, and we had one date and we're just trying to fill something in, they would throw us in the wildest places for gigs. It was back to, you know, my parents booking us, you know, it was back to that. <laughs> the salad bar. Like it's a bar. Yeah, it's a bar. It's a salad bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had the salad bar tonight. And you and I know you, and this is one of the things that's awesome about you, is that it doesn't matter if you're playing at the salad bar or if you're playing at some like big club in New York or some place in California or in a jet. So you are there. You are present. Oh yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you fake it. I've seen you play a lot. Yeah, I just have energy to, you know, when you really, really give it everything you know it's like a lightning bolt of energy and it, it feels good and um and if you feel other people responding to that then you start uh i don't know it's a it's a powerful form of communication russell goberton is the band you guys were like best friends you're on the road with your best friends yeah having these adventures right yeah i mean they, i would say we we argued our most then we are always like fighting and arguing and stuff like that. But uh, overall, it was like a brotherhood kind of a thing, you know, where we're all like, it was, we were so close from being in the same proximity together, doing the same thing for so long um, that, you know, we, it was like family, you know. Right. And the lineup didn't change for the longest time, right? Once, once the lineup was there for, for a while, it was the same team. Yeah. Well, for the, um, there was like a stretch of us uh, when we were DIY. We were just doing stuff with Bill Beasley and uh, like Bull Moose. That we would kind of like team up and function basically as a label, doing all the same stuff that you know that my dad did. You know, make the the record and get the press release and uh, the photos and all that stuff. Um, so it it was like long division. I mean, you could really go back to like Shish Boom Bam. That was like our first like real, but that was in the same lineup. The lineup that you're talking about was Long Division, My Dirt, and Rooms by the Hour. And then we made Viva Nueva together. Right. Uh, we made Viva and then Dave left. Dave Noise left uh, when we got into all the major label stuff. And then he came back when we went independent again. Never sold out. <laughs> I'm having all these memories now of like one of the things I also did for Rustic was I was a staple jockey for a while when I used to hang flyers on all remember in Portland you used to be able to hang flyers on all the boards and they would clean them every Tuesday and Thursday. And me and a couple other fellas, Beasley would give us I can't remember if it was bags of weed or maybe even we got credit at Granny Killam's industrial drink house. I can't remember what the deal was, but it was sketchy, right? Yeah. And I was around town all the time anyway. So I had a back, I had a, a, my briefcase, I would have various posters and I would just go staple them up. And then there were like wars between the staple jockeys. Like, hey, back off. I'm, you know, you, I'm seeing you put stuff over my rustic posters or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back in the, That's the do it yourself. Nineties uh, in Portland music scene. You guys were so friggin' poor. You're on the road. You're starving half the time, and um, at that time, I I was also bartending down at Free Street Taverna. And when you'd come back from tour, Dave Noise would come in after hours, and he and I would just hang out for hours. He would have like two beers, three beers, and smoke a joint, whatever. And he would just be telling me these horror stories 
of food <laughs> because we're all very food-centric guys, right? Yeah. And then, of course, there's the drugs and stuff, but it, it sucks. But Dave Noyes wasn't into that part of it, right? Dave Noyes is like a saint. Right. If it was you coming in at that time back in the mid-90s telling me the stories, there would be different stories than the stories Dave Noyes <laughs> told me at that time period, right? Right. So I get to witness that period of like when things started happening. You guys got signed to a big label. I want you to talk about that for a second. One of the things I remember was like when the label fronts everybody money for the recording sessions and all this stuff, how much money you guys spent on food. I recall there's constant huge spreads of food that ultimately you have to pay for, right? Because it comes out of your advance or something. Yeah, it, it pretty much, um, it was a big part, if not 50% of our studio budget, which was a million dollars. <laughs> was for food <laughs> well there was and drugs right weren't there can we talk about that no there wasn't there wasn't a, i can talk about that because it was just weed what about the white the if you wanted a white guitar versus a green guitar could talk about that it was a, a fender Rhodes electric piano oh okay if you wanted to rent um a green fender Rhodes, they would deliver and put it on your your record label receipt uh that you rented an instrument but you would actually get weed and if you did a white fender roads you'd get coke but we never got the white fender roads but we did get things like ping pong tables <laughs> had this stuff like delivered and set up and uh, you know um and, and the food yeah of course but um and like a lot of the features we had on that album uh, i think part of the big budget was because we were working with bowie and we were working with imogen um they didn't charge us wow. to do features on our album. So like normally they would be artists that you would have to pay, you know, thousands and thousands to get on your record. Um, the only person who charged us was Funkmaster Flex. Okay. I want to give it to Bowie uh, and Imogen in a second, but um, one more thing about the food that there, maybe it was where you were doing some secondary recording or something, some farm somewhere. Mm, that was, that was a good food story. That's when that's when we started eating. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we chose uh, to record our album "Viva Nuevo" with Tony Visconti, uh, David Bowie's longtime collaborator, and we went out to this farm, which it's not there anymore. I believe the farm is, but the studio might not be. Uh, called Longview. It's in Western Massachusetts, and it's this big farm with horses and a pond and big rolling fields. Um, and there's this great studio inside it. And they also have a lady that cooks like Southern soul food, manning this kitchen the whole time. And anytime you went and saw Lou, she would just make you whatever you wanted. And it was like, everything was stocked the whole time. You just imagine something and she would cook it up and it was gourmet. And we became good friends with Lou. <laughs> I just remember you guys being so hungry and then not being hungry. But let's talk about the actual experience of going in there. That's how you met Bowie. I love the how you, you and Bowie connected. I, If I'm remembering this correctly, you were trying to quit smoking cigarettes. And like Bowie's like, come on outside and have a smoke with me. Now, that's not the story. Because for, for one, I'm always trying to quit smoking. Um, but two... Bowie would never say you want to go outside and have a cigarette. He would smoke exactly where he was, no matter where it was. Oh, okay. Like there was no, there was no thought even if this was non-smoking. 
he would just be somewhere and he would smoke. And if he smoked, you could light up next to him because they're not going to tell you either. <laughs> but we, when we were, in, we were in New York, when we met Bowie, um, we're doing uh, overdubs at a different studio, not the long view studio, but he would light up in a museum. He'd light up in a nice restaurant and no one ever told him no smoking. And then I was right behind him, but I collected all his cigarette butts and I used to mail them home to my mother. She's got a Ziploc bag. It's one of her pride and joys with Bowie's DNA all over it. We could recreate we could. David Bowie. We have his DNA. We do. <laughs> you know, I have my lab here out in the woods where we can do some DNA. We could 3D print him probably, right? Yeah. And then you could do a duet. <laughs> wow. Talk more about your, your, I would say it was, a, it was a friendship at that time. You had a friend, you were buddies with him. Yeah. What was that like? We, we want to hear David Bowie's stories. Well, he was, well, first of all, he wasn't an alien. Okay. He was like a really approachable, normal guy in like a flannel shirt. And um, he was hilarious. Like him and I immediately just started goofing around on like dirty jokes and stuff. Uh, that was like. The first thing, um, and we were just always laughing and sending each other like messed up uh, emails and stuff. Um, it was it was really fun. I, you know, I think I've said it a million times. Or it's been printed somewhere that um, David Bowie asked how his first vocal take was when he did a vocal take, and I farted into the uh, the talkback <laughs> mic into his headphones. You're so gross. <laughs> That's the that's the point that we were at when um, we began recording after we had been writing and we've been hanging out at the studio for a month uh, and we've been going around town to restaurants and museums and um, he always invited us everywhere and he'd always inv introduce us to everyone. He introduced me to Joey Ramone and Lou Reed, yeah. uh, uh, Natalie Merchant, oh, uh, Debbie Harry. You know, as a kid from Gorham, Maine, to be rubbing elbows with those people, I mean. I'm not saying because they're celebrities. I'm saying because they're all great artists, right? I mean, in your genre, right? You're getting to hang out with people that you listen to. What well, What did you think of Bowie before you recorded with him? Obsessed with Bowie, like that's the my whole my whole influences were like the Clash and Bowie and all the all that uh, British punky kind of stuff. Well, you're very performative, just like Bowie is was uh, the the whole. Dave Gutter's stage persona has shifted over the years. You're always got something going on, but sometimes like with Paranoid Social Club, like back when it was like heavy tuxedo usage or whatever, versus <laughs> the big band of Rustic, versus like the sex pop of Armies, versus you know, the stuff you're... Sex pop. I just made that up. Does that sound uh, good? I like that. I like that, yeah. Sex pop. Sex pop. Sex pop. Sex pop. Sex pop. I don't know. Sometimes I like, um, lately I've been liking, uh, no frills, everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though I wore a tuxedo to the, the Grammys, I was deathly afraid that uh, I was somehow like that there was going to be some guy, uh, checking the, the quality of my fabric and not letting me in. It like doesn't meet some sort of standard. So I was like, I need to get exactly a perfect black tie tuxedo. So I don't mess anything up. And the first picture, the non-glam picture of you and Connie in front of a backdrop, 
Connie's looking cool. She got a jean jacket on, something like that. And it's, it cuts off like a couple inches below your waist. It, oh, yeah. it appeared to me that you were wearing pajama bottoms. Is that accurate? Well, no. What what happened was um, I went to the studio earlier that day. Um, and I was in a studio with this uh, producer. Actually, the the you know the band The Rascals? Like, it's a beautiful morning. Yeah. Oh, the old time? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. The singer of that band's son is my friend. He calls himself Snake Child. Okay. But we're at Snake Child's studio um, doing some recording, and we got carried away. My friend texted me. There's a pre-Grammy party you're supposed to be at. Um, they're closing the doors um, when the the ceremony starts, and you won't be able to get in. And we were far away. Um, and, and she said it was his black tie. And I was like, oh, my God, we're not we're not near our tuxedo that's back where we're staying we're at the studio um so we're like what do we wear and i had just gotten these like plaid kind of like pajama pants um <laughs> just because i was going to be in the studio all day and a funny story a friend had bought me a pair of converse that looked like uh blue bandanas right before <laughs> i left and I was like, oh, my brand, brand new sneakers. I'll bring those to California with me. Uh, as soon as I landed in California wearing these sneakers, everyone was like, you're going to get us killed. Those are Crip shoes. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, those are like Crip shoes. Like That's what they wear. Um, and I was like, I had no idea. I didn't think that was still a thing. I knew the Bloods and the Crips, you know, bandanas and everything. But yeah. I just didn't, it didn't register to me. So I had to wear Crocs. They were the only shoes that my friend Ben that I was staying with, the only shoes that he had that fit me because he wore a whole size smaller than me. And you're not a Croc dude. I mean. I'm not. No. So not. I have to rush off to get to this pre-Grammy party um, with Connie, and we both are not dressed up at all. But we're just like, we got to get in the door before we get locked out. So we show up and on these pajama pants and Crocs and she's in a jean jacket and um, everyone was like, people were asking to take pictures with us. People were like, oh, so cool that you, uh, you just showed up in Crocs. And I was like, all right, I guess it's cool. But, <laughs> but uh, we made a bunch of friends, like just having conversations about it. We were just like, yeah, we don't know what we're doing here. We just like rushed over. Uh, but the performer that headlined, um, the pre-Grammy party was an artist that uh, probably five years ago, I wrote an entire album for her uh, in Asheville, South Carolina. Her name's Sydney Franklin. And I went down to Asheville and did a, a whole record with her as the vocalist. Wow. And she was like 20 years old. and uh, But she's amazing. And uh, she was playing this pre-Grammy party. And she's got a bunch of songs on uh, Grey's Anatomy. Great. Said she's nice. a very big placement for um, music. You're the type of guy who's like, everything happens for a reason in a weird way. Where I am is where I love to be, all that stuff. Right. Um, how do you view like the pain and disappointment of that big rock deal gone bad? And if you could talk a little bit more historically now with age and wisdom, how you view that whole time period. Well, I... I, I didn't take it as a painful process at all uh, because I gradually, during that um, whole experience, I was realizing that maybe being uh, anywhere in like the top 40 
would be a nightmare for me. Uh, and that that that's not what I wanted. And that's not really where my music belongs. And that was in the early 2000s when we were going through that. And uh, there was a big resurgence of indie rock music that came out around that time. Um, and with the internet, um, indie music and DIY music started flooding everywhere. So uh, I just kind of felt like I jumped back in the stream of the DIY thing and had the the fortune that the whole world kind of did too, uh, where everything is, no one has a, a record label. They own their own label or they run the, the business themselves. And that's the pride there. They want to be local. They don't want to be national. They want to be specialized and they want to be boutique and unique. And, you know, so, um, that I think um, has helped me sustain myself through um, becoming or realizing my humility and, and being humble with that letdown from the label, kind of being like, I'm just going to go this way, like, <laughs> you know, and do things the way I was doing it. So it was, I, I, I like that kind of stuff. I like a challenge. I like to be shoved by something so I can, like respond that 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 kind of stuff makes me right and the whole thing about the failed rock deal nothing was your fault or the band fault it's just the industry collapsed totally at that time like literally the worst time in the world modern world perhaps maybe not i don't know that was my perspective at least like it was shifting from yeah cds and all, it was a bad time in the industry it was it was cool that we got to see all that like you know uh we've seen vinyl we've seen cassettes and cds and we've seen ipods and like it's kind of funny i mean some of us have even seen eight tracks it's like my first radio job we were using eight tracks still carts for like news and stuff like that <laughs> i would like to just go back to the grammys yeah okay and i want to bring up this whole relationship that you have with aaron neville and i would also like to talk about your relationship with kraz eric kraz now well i've known Eric Krasno for uh, many, many years, since my early 20s. I, he played in the group Lettuce with Ryan Zoitis, who was also in Rustic. So and he also played in Soul Live. Love Soul Live. We'd all do shows together. Yeah, so I, I knew him from a long, long time ago, but uh, probably around, I guess, 2015 or so, uh, he asked me to write a record for him. He was going to go from being... Uh, an instrumentalist to being a vocalist and putting out his first vocal album. And he wanted me to help him write over a bunch of instrumentals that he had made. So I wrote a bunch of stuff um, that worked out, uh, became his first album. Uh, he was happy with it. He recorded it up here at the space that we were talking about. Uh, then we did uh, a couple songs on uh, Tedeschi Trucks Band album. And then we had a few other placements in like uh, dubstep electronica things. And then we got the audition. Um, they were looking for a, a producer and a songwriter for Aaron Neville's record. And we submitted to it. Uh, we went into the studio and I wrote a song called um, Love is Strong. Um, because I just pictured how Aaron Neville was like the biggest buffest strongest dude and i thought like a soul tune 
uh, about uh, like your brawn and your, your uh, it was like a very heroic uh, kind of thing. Um, it was like how I pictured Aaron Neville. He ended up not wanting to do that song. I think maybe because it was a little too like on the nose. Um, it was, part of it was like, I'll bet I wait for you, girl, my shoulders are broad. <laughs> you know, it was like, so I think it was like a little too descriptive uh, of his physique, maybe, maybe a little too hot. But it might make him sound a little ego too, right? Like I'm so big and strong, right? <laughs> and he's not, he's not an ego guy like that, right? Right, he's right. Like it, super not. It was very, right? yeah, it was very confident. So uh, we ended up getting uh, the audition. The the runners up were uh, Keith Richards and Don Was. What? I never knew that. Yeah, and we and we got it because of um, he gave me like three hundred uh, poems, like hard. Like he mailed me a package of like papers and like books that he'd written in notebooks and uh, letters to his wife and to his family members, um, condolence letters that were like really beautiful uh, during different times, like um, when people in his, his family had died. So I just com made compartments of all these uh, different topics, you know, like this stuff is all spiritual. These are poems about, being spiritual these are about love these ones are about the streets of new orleans these this is about the music of new orleans this is about this is like how music makes you feel he had a lot of like that kind of thing um and then i just would go through and there'd be we'd all be like working on like you know like some cool music to make and i would just kind of picture what part of those poems would kind of go with um the the picture they were painting with like the mood of the music um so you know like stomping ground um was a, a fun one because you could immediately hear when you read his poem that there was like a rhythm to it and we kind of just based it on that but um for that one all the you know the verses um are pretty much aaron neville's poem and then the pre-chorus uh and the chorus and the chord changes throughout that part and then throughout the bridge are the sections that I wrote for it. Interesting. Okay. So that's why you're co-songwriter on that with him, right? Right. Because well, because a lot of them were like that. There were some songs that were completely um my lyrics with just changes for Aaron Neville's inflections. Um, but others were um, you know, his po his poems, and it was basically like make this a song. Um, so sometimes I would change the rhyme scheme of things or the way things were said. Um, but it was like, a, it, part of it was like less imaginative as it was just kind of structuring these words rhythmically over this and where everything would fall. Um, so it's a, it's a really niche kind of writing and, and editing, uh, that I did on some of the, the stuff, the Aaron Neville record, which was cool because, um, you know, as much as I could incorporate the stuff he had written in times that he spent in prison, um, this stuff meant a lot to him and to be able to put it to music, uh, whenever I could get his line in there and have it work with something else. And sometimes it would be a line from a whole other poem that I'd be like, what these two lines together, you know, sound like this. Um, that was always really special because Aaron would have a big smile on his face, like getting to use something that he had written when, you know, he was 
you know, just kind of stream of consciousness writing poems. Well, first of all, what an honor for you, first of all, to be trusted with that. I mean, that's a huge trust thing to give all that yep. very deep personal stuff. Because we know he's like, I mean, he's a soulful dude. He's very religious. I mean, yeah. there's this uh, whole mystique about him. So for him to give some uh, young fellow, well, you're not even young anymore. Christ, that was only like five years ago. But uh, <laughs> He called me a young fella. <laughs> the, the trust factor, but now also the bond that you have with him, which is just another thing. Aaron Neville texts me every single day. Every day, every day, like, and when I say every day, I mean like five times a day. And it's amazing. He sends me um, like re recordings, unreleased recordings from live shows that he's done. Um, he'll send me uh, YouTube links to like different uh, songs he's done in the past. And like he even talks through the, his, his catalog. So I sent him a picture of Connie. And I said, this, it was him and her when she was eight years old. And I said, uh, this little girl uh, is now a teenager and she's going to the Grammys because of the song we made together. And he's, he sent me a song uh, called um, the, that little girl melts your heart. <laughs> that, as a response to that. Right. As a response to that. Uh, oh, that's so awesome. Right. And um, there was a time. Uh, I was in Belfast and I got some weed that was called like Neville Farms. And I took a picture of it and sent it to him. And I was like, um, I was like, is this, is this your farm? Is this?" And <laughs> unfortunately, he responded uh, with talking to me about um, one of his brothers that was or his cousin that was incarcerated for years and years and years on like a roach charge. You know, the, the fact that we were able to be so free with weed now is on the shoulders of so many activists and people that ended up in prison. We really need to empty. Not only do we need to empty the prisons, but we need to expunge records. We need to. I mean, it's the drug war was such a joke. You and I know that. And it's crazy. You know, but back in the day when I was in the Coast Guard, uh, if a lobsterman had a joint on or a roach on a boat, they could confiscate the entire boat. If the crew member had a, a, a bag of weed, a joint they could just take the whole boat. I mean, now it's like, I, you know, I have more extraneous weed on my shirt that I brush off onto the ground every day <laughs> right. that would get me in prison back in the olden days. So yeah, that's, you know, again, that shows you the depth of him as a man to bring it back to that, huh? Take your funny line and switch it around to some social justice. Um, so it's interesting. You have that relationship uh, with Aaron Neville, I, I I want to talk about the Crouch relationship too. You have that relationship with Crouch. You have that relationship with Bowie. You have the relationship with all these musicians that you've played with over the years just as because of the way you play music, the way you make music. It's just like this, you know, one writhing mess of music together that you're all like turn into one thing. It, it just, again, it puts a big smile on my face that like you've got this – you. Finally, somebody's winning, <laughs> and like you're winning for all of us in these horrible times when there's so much injustice, <laughs> but there's so much bad stuff. It's just so nice to see, like you and Aaron Neville <laughs> working together and being buds. I know, and and then the whole thing with Cross, who I want to talk about now. I watched the video uh, for the song that won the Grammy. See Cross in the back, and he's acting like the conductor almost, right? You see him like signaling and and then just the amazing singing of not only 
Aaron Neville, but yeah. his backup. And the music was like, holy wow. He's stated uh, multiple times that uh, Apache, the record we made together, is his favorite record of his career. Oh, my goodness. And and um, it was the first record that he did about his life. I mean, he had done a lot of like, you know, the Linda Ronstadt stuff and um, even like, you know, in the 80s, like some country pop kind of stuff. But um, they were all like songs that were written just kind of for a singer to sing not necessarily the story of Aaron Neville. Right. And a lot of those other soul singers had done that. They had dug deep, uh, like Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. I was going to say Marvin Gaye, right. He he dug deep inside himself and like started telling about his life. He went from, you know, the, the love songs of, of Motown and all that, uh, and then got a little deeper with it. And then so did Curtis Mayfield. And these are people that Aaron talked about wanting to make a record like so you can definitely tell when you throw on the record that first song sounds a lot like curtis mayfield because um, that was when he had mentioned that we wanted to make something in honor of that but um there was all kinds of strange coincidences with the aaron neville um record um or just things that it, you probably do the same thing as a writer but uh you perceive your surroundings you try to absorb them as much as you can if anything's happening if anything visually looks artistic or whatever um so i was looking at aaron's poem and it was a poem all about um like what is love um and like what is um you know a relationship thing but it was all like what is this what is that what is this um and I was looking out the window of the bus on my way my way home and there was a billboard for IKEA that said um uh it had almost the same type of wording and then it said all of the above. And then so I was like all of the above that sounds like heaven. <laughs> so I took the the love songs and I mixed them with the spiritual stuff so the second verse became spiritual. And it was a series of questions that the chorus was, the answer was, uh, love is all of the above. That's what love is. Love is everything underneath the sun. You know what I mean? Wow. Uh, so it was just a, a whole bunch of things that I would just see and I'd perceive around me. And I'm, I've, I've been doing that a lot lately uh, for writing, um, just trying to take in any conversation. And I'm grateful for any conversation I have with any human being. Um, I'm, I'm very guilty of like talking to the, uh, the crazy drunk guy that's mad at you cause you don't have any money, uh, for way too long. And I'm, I'm not usually not arguing. I'm usually just talking, uh, you know, the guy who for sure. Who I've seen you do that a, literally <laughs> a million times where like, and I'm sure it's a problem with the cash of the bitch is like, can we get going please gutter? Because we've got things to do. And you're like, talking to the wacky dog wacky yeah. guy which is lovable like, at the same time but you know there's things to do here dude um even so some of my craziest friends it's why i can't really let go of them because they provide provide so much fodder for like um a certain side of my songwriting that is you know i don't know it's all that your attention to details huge that that's another thing i love about you and and that's what you're you're after now this attention to detail but also the turn of phrase your poet thing and your wit and all that stuff. So it's like, 
you're a very dangerous writer because you've got all these different weapons. And then to add it all together and, and, and make music. Um, and, you know, I, I want to get back to Kraus for a second here. There's this, uh, I hope it's okay to talk about this. Yeah. But, like, didn't Kraus give you, like, a special secret magical lesson that changed your life guitar-wise? Yes. Can we talk about yes. that? Because I love that story. Yeah. Um, he was coming home from uh, a tour. He just did a bunch of festivals. It was in the summer. And he was like, do you want to meet me at my apartment in Brooklyn? And we'll do a writing session. It actually was on the eve of working on the Aaron Neville album, which I've never put those two in the timeline together before, but that is... okay. It was the night I went there for the audition. Okay. So I, I might as well start the whole audition before this. Um, we found out I got the audition, and me and my daughter Connie and Caitlin all slow danced to Tell It Like It Is by, by Aaron Neville when I got the audition, um, which is also I never thought of how poignant the the title of that is uh tell it like it is it was like advice <laughs> <laughs> totally going going into this whole thing um so anyway um i went down there to do the the songwriting thing after i got the audition we met at the apartment um he said do you want uh, some mushroom chocolates and i was like sure so I took the mushroom chocolates and I'd never been in a position before where someone would offer you something that was such a crazy experience uh, and, and not do it themselves. Um, and I'm just like, you know, Mainer in New York City, like and he's like, yeah, I'm exhausted. I'm going to bed. I'm not taking any. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> I I bugged out. I wasn't even like I could have been outside on the roof. I could have been playing the guitar. I could have been listening to music. I was like on Facebook or like something all night, just like freaking out, having kind of a bad trip um, or just a disoriented trip. And then at the peak of it, at like three in the morning, he comes out of the bedroom and says, let's have a guitar lesson. And he turns his amp in, in his guitar all the way loud, puts it in my hands and says, it's three in the morning, don't wake my neighbors, but play a guitar solo. And I'm like, <laughs> I played with the most delicate hair that I've ever played on an instrument before um, because I was tripping and because he put this incredibly loud, it was just like buzzing and humming because it was so loud. So I could just barely push on the strings and I could barely touch it. Um, and, I, and I did it. Um, and then he took the guitar and said, well, here's what you played. And he played it. And he said, this is what it would sound like if Aretha Franklin sang those same notes. And he would show me that Aretha always slides into the first note and she growls in the second note and then she falls off the last one. So he would play three notes and he would do that and do that and do that. And it would sound like Aretha Franklin. Wow. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that was the extent of the lesson. That was the extent of the guitar lesson. And it changed my life forever. Wow. Like it changed the way I played an instrument forever. It was insane. The very next day I had a show uh, in Rhode Island and everyone was commenting like, what happened? Like, how did you? Um, and it was just like, it made me and the instrument like 
way more connected. See, you're 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 modest because you were a good guitar player before, but then it was like boing, like something went off. Well, it was like it was like connecting it to my voice. It was now it was like my voice was like me, but then my guitar was always this thing I was doing. Now that kind of feels the same when I do it combined. Yeah. Wow. 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 I was thinking about this. Like, let's go back to the olden days. When approximately was that Sullivan Gym show? Do you know what I'm talking about? The Sullivan Gym. Yeah, USA? that was a that was a long time ago. Maybe maybe ninety four. Yeah, ninety four ninety five. All right, but do you remember like? I mean, the kids tearing the tickets in half. They were like this keep keep this coupon type tickets. It was it was a crazy, 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 crazy show. Yeah, it was the first fire fest or the first uh, the Woodstock <laughs> two thousand whatever. Right. It was or nineteen ninety whatever. Yeah, the bad Woodstock. But it was it was like a big. It could have been way way worse. Um, it was us, fly spinach fly. Chucklehead. Chucklehead. Uh, oh, I love Chucklehead. Uh, who else was? I don't know, but it was a fun bill, but we definitely didn't know what we were doing as far as security went. And they didn't really know what to expect. They didn't know that we were throwing this big thing because they had never heard of any of these bands. Right. <laughs> but then it like 3,000 more people in I, there. I think like, more it, than was, that. it was It was crazy. Yeah, it might have been. I remember uh, girls throwing uh, undergarments on you. I know that wasn't a rarity back in the day, understandably. It happened last week. Did it really? It did. The The question behind the rock star thing, when uh, people throw their underwear, what do you do with that? I give them I give them back. You give them back? I give them back. Yeah. After the show or just you throw it right back? Yeah, I usually, I'm, I'm cleaning off my equipment off stage. I don't have roadies, so I'm there coiling up my cables and I... The bras is kind of there. So I'm just kind of taking everything. Some people, they want the set list from the show. I give them that. And I'm like, who's bra? We want this back. <laughs> I mean, those things aren't cheap. I, mean, I don't wear them. It's kind of insulting. I don't even wear them. Not anymore. Not since any- you've been working out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other thing about that show that was so awesome, uh, Sullivan Gym is, for people that don't know, is at the University of Southern Maine Portland campus. So it's a pretty big gym. And then there's like the upper levels of uh, like maybe where like uh, the radio broadcast or whatever would happen. It's not the down on the floor. It's like the booths up above and like your mother, everybody's parents are up there and there's like yeah. people knitting. I remember being up there and somebody, I don't know whose mother was, was a big knitter um, <laughs> and they're knitting. But meanwhile, like literally like on the ground below them is like pandemonium and like, their sons. It was people crowd surfing and everything. Yeah, it's like a mosh pit. Mo- of like huge. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> and so that was a great show. The funniest scene from that is that um, you would see like a little kid in a double XL shirt because the security guys were selling their security shirts <laughs> to people. Um, I, Cause I don't know. We like didn't have, I don't know if we didn't have merch or something. I assume that we did, but oh. They, they wanted these shirts, so they were selling them. And so you would see like an 11-year-old kid with a security shirt on, and you would need help. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's like, where's my guy? He's like 11. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, there's another. I wasn't at this show, but I know that I've heard the story. I'd love for you to tell it again. What, what, I love that these are main shows because obviously you've had crazy shows across the country. 
we could talk for hours about all the different crazy shows. But I love the main show so much because, you know, you're our boys, right? So, but what was the one that the crowd turned on you at UMaine? Is that UMaine? Yes. What was that one? We were just we were just going through footage of that. Um, I'm working on the documentary again. Great, great. Um, so this uh, was at UMaine Orono. I'm not sure what year. 90s 2000. sometime, right? 90s? No, I think it was... I think it was 2000. Um, I don't know. I'm, maybe you're right. Anyway, uh, there's a whole bunch of rappers and rustic overtones. The headliner was supposed to be Red Man and Method Man. Right, right. And it was raining all day. So because we were popular at the time, not necessarily in the hip hop community, but for some reason that is always where we got put. And we had to fend for ourselves. And I think that toughened us up a little bit. But um, we were the direct support. After all, the whole day of hip hop, everyone was amazing. Us right before Red Man and Method Man, who canceled. <laughs> and this, they've been standing in the rain all day. And then they have us as a consolation prize. <laughs> I mean, we're just, we provide a whole different service than Red Man and Method Man do. Uh, you can't, it's apples to oranges. But they were pissed uh, that we weren't Red Man and Method Man. They'd been waiting in the rain all day. They started throwing mud at us. Um, and we had accumulated enough mud on the stage and bottles and sticks and everything that we began throwing it back. Um, and we just had this huge mud fight with the audience. Um, but what was funny is the news followed us up there because we had a bunch of stuff going on with our album coming out and they wanted to do a story on it. Um, but we got booed like off the stage <laughs> while fighting the audience. But they, but what they did was when they ran the story, they showed the people earlier cheering, like when they were like, are you, are you ready for red band and method band? And they'd be like, <laughs> and they edited that footage yeah, yeah. with us, like on the stage, like setting up. <laughs> oh wow! Just shows so you it, the, how lame the media is, or all they can't tell the truth, right? The better story, the better story is the melee that ensued afterwards, right? So it looked right, right. But we have that. I have the full uncut footage that we're using in the doc. Yeah, I can't wait till you make that movie. That's so great. And would you say that was it, was it like an angry fight? Yes, yes angry fight what was the beloved dave noise doing during that um i ducking i mean there was some there was some people ducking there was some people he wasn't fighting back he's like gandhi right. so who was fighting who was throwing stuff back at the crowd name, name names me john roots ryan zoitis we definitely were but there were people in the crowd spence what did, did spencer uh, yeah i what think did spencer i don't do? remember Sp i think spencer was there I don't. I okay. I th I was assume Spencer was a big part of uh, the mud fight, but people from the audience. We did have some people there that were on our side, and they jumped on the stage with us and began fighting um, the other people. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's nuts. So I say uh, you've had all these nutty experiences cross country and the world, even. Uh, but how does that? Is that one of the nuttier ones? Would you say the the mud fight? Is that? Oh yeah, that's that's definitely. I mean, it wasn't often considering that we were always on a hip hop label. So all the tours we did were Run DMC and De La Soul, 
rest in peace, Plug Two, who died last week. Yeah. Um, that's right. so sad. That. They've been 20 years fighting with Tommy Boy um over their catalog. But we were on Tommy Boy at that time. But right. Um, but all the groups, Foxy Brown, we we used to play all the time with Foxy Brown, which is not needed. Like Foxy Brown fans don't want Rustic Overtones. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some Rustic Overtones fans would enjoy Foxy Brown's music, but it's like we were always put in these positions where we had to just like do do something, <laughs> you know, like just do what you do as good as you can and be yourself. Yeah. Or you're immediately exposed. <laughs> I, I want to back go back to the relationship with Kraz, right? So the, you know, your life changed because of Aaron Neville, but that became uh, so because of Kraz, yeah. right? So like, what's your relationship with him now? Oh, it's great. Uh, we just got a Grammy together. That will really solidify a friendship. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I went over to his house and uh, we spent the day in the studio um, hanging out with a, a couple guys that like, um, one of the guys, the singer for a band called white denim that I, I really like. And the other guy, um, his name is delicate Steve and he's played uh, guitar with, um, Paul Simon, Kanye West, uh, all kinds of, all kinds of different people. So we hung out in the studio and like jammed a little bit with those guys and then had dinner. Um, but yeah, we're great friends. He lives in California now. So most of the stuff we do is via email, um, which is much less romantic. Uh, we did, we, when we get together, we have these sessions where we, I think we've had a, a day that yielded eight songs before. Wow. Um, Pumping them out. Yeah. Just going. So, I mean, yeah. are, your songwriting partners at times? It depends on what kind of artist he's working with. Yeah. If he's working with an artist that's already very prolific and they have their kind of their voice and their they know what they, they're doing, he's not going to force a, a lyric writer uh, in a situation like that. So, But if he comes across someone who's struggling with lyrics or um, almost have hooks or meaning or whatever they're looking for, um, and but but not quite then that's when I, I get on it. And sometimes people are just straight up like, yeah, I can't write. We need a writer. So I get those, but that's why it's not for every project. Um, it's only when it's applicable. Does this Grammy make your life easier in any way work-wise? Well, it's, you know, a, a resume kind of thing. I'm going to, I'm trying to this week get on top of, you know, getting things like, endorsements get you know maybe get some microphones or a guitar i know other people get like cool things from people when they get grammys um i was thinking about um you know just this is a soundtrack um to the movie take me to the river directed by martin shore um and i i realized this week that um the most money i've made and now the biggest honor that i've received is through uh placements in movies and soundtrack stuff um the narcos thing um yeah <laughs> i love the narcos and then and then this so like i'm going to be doing a lot of um you know music with that kind of stuff in mind uh like i love 
the mix like like when you think of us you write a song and you can already picture the video for it it's like you know what i mean you already you have this scene in your imagination uh before we jump away the narco story i don't want to go into too much detail about like the oh let's go all right can we talk about that for real yeah i'll talk about whatever okay so the narco story just don't tag them uh, when you post it. Don't like. No, we won't. We won't. <laughs> so Narcos is a TV show on Netflix, and and you were having, I mean, to be blunt, you were having some hard times financially at that time. That was a. Well, you are a big part of this story. You are a big part of this story because when I got the check, in the mail, for that, um, we were broken down on the side of the road, in your car. I vaguely. In Bayside. Yes. Yes, the car. Yes, when we were fin- yes, and and we had yeah, I totally um, remember that now. I I forgot all about that. that and I got um, yeah, I got a call from Caitlin, and she said the Netflix check just got here, and she told me how much it was for, and I was like zippity doodah, you were freaking out. You would call, you would call AAA. They're on their way, whatever. You were freaking out. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to walk home. And I just zippity doodad my ass all the way to South Portland uh, on that energy. It seemed like you it flew three minutes. It was like you levitated. <laughs> I did. I floated on air. Um, but because the, the thing is, the check the was so much more than right. you ever thought it was going to be. Right. So rewind to me going to ask Netflix for money because a song I had been a co-writer on with Grammatic and Eric Krasno was used in the series Narcos about Pablo Escobar, um, who also ties into all this. Um, <laughs> so Pablo, um, I represent myself. I'm independent. I don't have agents. I don't have managers. I don't have people who have power attorney to do things and deals and everything. I do everything myself. I print off the invoices. Um, I do the split sheets for like the writers and um, I don't even have like an attorney. Um, Every once in a while, I have a friend that will kind of look over some stuff for me. Um, But I've seen enough contracts and know... uh, when you've when you've fallen for every trick in the book, there's really not much left they can get you with. So, um, but anyway, so I I approach uh, Netflix and I say I need to be paid for my contribution to this song that was used and licensed to be in Narcos, um, and they sent me a thing and it said, uh, what is it, pro rata, something like that. Um, it means my portion of you know one third of the thing so i split it with the other two guys so um they ended up they we kept having to correct it they kept saying oh yeah you get the full amount and i said no i get one third of that you get the full amount and i got one third of that finally they were like at their wits end and they sent me a check and i called and i was like it's supposed to be one third of this. And they said, we've told you a number of times that that is the correct amount. And like, you know, you have some mistake on your end where I'm doing everything myself. I assume like, maybe I don't know what this wording means or whatever. And maybe it does mean I get more. I don't know. So um, a few days go by 
Well, well, first of all, when I go to cash it, um, they also contact um, Netflix and they said just to, uh, you know, your ingredients that this is the amount of the check and this is all correct. They confirm once again, they did it. So I go a couple days um, with a big chunk of money and I'm making all these plans. My life has changed. <laughs> And they email me and they say, Ooh, there's been a slight oversight. <laughs> um, we're going to need you to just send that money back. And I was like, damn, I don't want to. So I, I emailed them back. I spent it. And meanwhile, I'm like, Caitlin, open your laptop. Um, we need to start spending all of this money. I don't know what, I don't know what kind of logic <laughs> this is. Um, <laughs> for the taxes or whatever. Well, I remember you paid some debts, but what I loved was that you got the trip to was it Disney World or what is it in Florida? Yeah, I owed I owed Connie a trip for one of her birthdays a few years ago. Before that, that um, I said I'll take you to Disney, and then we weren't able to go. And then all of a sudden, I was like, Oh yeah, we're going to Disney, and I got everything like front of the line. <laughs> you get these super super privileged passes where you butt everyone in line. Um, and we stayed at a nice place and um, it was super great. But that's one of the things that we went like Brewster's millions on <laughs> and we got like furniture and beds, but I was like, I spent it, but I would gladly uh, like to set up a payment plan with you to pay it back. <laughs> um, and all they sent back was don't sweat it. And that wow. was it. Wow. And then I saw something like the next week that like Netflix spent like, like three billion dollars to find out like what people like to watch or something, <laughs> you know. Like, um, I don't even so, have Netflix anymore. I, I I'm a Hulu watcher when I'm watching stuff now. I just you know, um, the streaming wars. I like Tubi. Tubi, okay. I haven't checked. Tubi's free and Tubi's great. I, I generally don't take yeah. any movie advice from you because of the stunts you've pulled on me over the year trying to get me watch like, movies <laughs> that I would not want to watch. And I know that you do this with a lot yes. of people. You recommend a certain movie, and then they're like, oh. <laughs> "Let's talk about movies second. Because here's the thing: I've spent a lot of time with you. All right. Um, recently, you didn't know it though, because with the new Adobe Premiere Pro uh, film editing software, the the latest version, there's a subtitle option that they never had before. And when we made a movie together, Sex, Drugs, and Blueberries, you know, years ago now that's how we met that's how we became buds mm -hmm. so we should thank uh tom our buddy tom or uh, frank rizzo the producer of that film shout out to him because he came in handy for us big time when the, we finished the movie we didn't have any budget for closed captioning right it was going to be like fifteen hundred dollars mm. and like we had nothing left by that point so that and then bull moose sponsored us and we made a dvd of that movie and i did a trade with them for books and all this stuff and they put out the dvd and it was exactly at the moment that people stopped using dvds right yeah it's like back when you used to have rustic cassette tapes right and then nobody's got a cassette player so you've got like all these like media things oh we have we have so many uh cds right now <laughs> <laughs> so anyways um when i was working and found out that the the new software had um, this closed captioning ability. I can't believe I'm telling you this is kind of boring, but I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can do this now because that's what was stopping uh, from us from putting 
the film up on Amazon because you have to have the closed caption. Oh. And uh, you can use AI, but I don't want it to be AI because I wrote this film and I don't want like AI version of the main dialect showing up because when it's so I had to do it, right? Right. So anyways, I'm just about done with it. I've been spending a week and I'm doing other stuff too. But um, so I've been watching this film and uh, so many parts of it are, are just really, I, I love because it's like, we had some fun making that movie. And um, you were great in that movie. Oh, thanks. You too. And um, now I'm going to milk that. Year. So now that I'm putting this thing out, I'm just going to say, and, and starring Grammy Award winning songwriter Dave Gutter, right? <laughs> Boom. Kerching. Maybe we'll be able to cash in on that. But um, one of the things that I love about that uh, experience, besides us becoming really great friends, and I think that was a bonding thing. And I feel like this is going back to the way you are with Kraz and well, all the all the people that you work with. When you collaborate with someone, because you're so deep, you, you kind of bond on this level. So you are you have you're such a great depth of human that you can spread yourself thin. But during that time period, like I felt like we really bonded really well. And I'm watching some of these scenes as we're subtitling them, and I just remember how much weed we smoked. Oh, my God. We're not going to do, like, fake joints in that movie because I'm not going to smoke tobacco, right? We smoked a lot of weed in that movie. I mean, we smoked a lot of weed together, but... There was that one that one scene in the Blueberry Field where we were at the tailgate of the truck. Yes, yes. And, oh, man, like, I... That was the first time ever we only had a mile to drive in the country. Right. And I was like, I can't drive. <laughs> I can't drive one mile on the empty road, on a dirt road that we had a road to ourselves on an empty road. Yeah. Um, but uh, man, who knows how much, I mean, literally a pound of weed, at least a pound. I have no idea. I, I mean, if you think about it, it was like an unbelievable amount of weed and money and everything. Well, but you remember that night that I, I, we were shooting like a, a party scene at Ganesha's house and, like I made everybody take tincture. It was like such a mistake because everybody took like the cannabis tincture really powerful and it slowed everything down. And you can see like, you can see the effect <laughs> on the actors. But um, I had a great time uh, making that film, but also it's a sad film. And it's also one of the things I realized while watching it, there's no cell phones in it, which I love because I hate seeing cell phones in movies now and mm -hmm. TV. It seems like cell phones are everywhere. I don't have a cell phone. I'm never going to have one. I, I know you have a phone, but I don't want the government tracking me. I joked yesterday, if you see a movie that doesn't have a cell phone, it's because they're filming the movie on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, too. Again, with the filming of that movie, we were on the cusp because right now your phone is probably as good as the camera that we had with that lens that cost us. We had to rent the lens for like, I think it was like $6,000 Wow! to shoot the lot, you know, because we have the different lenses. And the camera was 4K, and we're all like, oh, my God, a 4K camera. Now it's like a phone has like a 20K camera, you know? Yeah. So, again, the changes. Right. And I, I want to make a, a, another movie with you. I, we've talked about it. It's finding a time to do it where it's just me and you and maybe a couple people and not a big thing. I have this great idea. I've told you about the film. We're not going to talk about it now. But I want to talk about your parents for a second because, first of all, they're super cute. I know your mother doesn't like me. Your mother thinks I'm a pornographer of some sort. I, I think that was because of the movie. Yes. So I've never been able to win your mother over. But your father, however, recently liked a photo of mine on Facebook of bacon smoking that we had in the backyard. Bacon from one of my pigs. Mm. So Dave Gutter, the meat cutter, liked it. And when I saw that, it was like, nice. 
because I know he knows meat. Validation. <laughs> I gave you some of that bacon. I dropped that off. I had it dropped off. You guys haven't eaten that bacon yet, have you? No, I'm about to, though. But that's Connie's bacon. That was for Connie. Well, it says it. There's a label on it. So, yeah, I know that. All right. I'll make sure to share it. Let's talk about your parents, though. You're, you're, so I want to back up, though, about my parents. My mom doesn't like you because she thinks you're a pornographer because my dad is such a big fan of pornography. <laughs> I have all, I have all these. Um, so even if she suspects you of creating anything titillating at all, um, there's some really funny stories about my dad. Like um, it was, my mom was like, you know what? While David's over here, let's move the couch over there by the window and I can put my plants there and get more light or whatever. And he was like, no, couch is fine where it is. And she's like, oh, come on, David, let's just try it. No, it's fine where it is. And then she's like, God damn it, I'll do it. He's like, get out of the way, I'll do it. And he moves the couch and a pile of like VHS porn like topples over that he'd hidden underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, recently we just found this going into um, my, the documentary a documentary crew had been following me around, archiving uh, stuff from my past. We went to my parents' house. My mom dug out a VHS tape that said David's first talent show. The first time I'd ever performed on stage in my whole life. She goes to put in the tape. We're all sitting there with our reaction. And my dad had taped over my first performance ever with Cinemax porn. And it yeah, it comes on, and it's just this like teased hair lady, and uh, it was hilarious. Oh my word! Your mother must have been flipping. <laughs> does she yell at your dad? It was about such it? a great. Like, how does she treat him about it? Is she... Yeah, she was like, "Oh, you weirdo, you weird asshole." <laughs> uh, but there's all there's a bunch of funny stories like that. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's so sweet. It's terrible that your mother has an impression of me because you know I'm not a pornographer. And I remember we were at a wedding together and we were at some place. I don't even remember where it was. I can't even remember what wedding it was at. And she was there. And it was a very beautiful um, place that it was at. Remember, there were like these wonderful trees. Mm -hmm. And I was I love trees, right? So I'm outside. I'm looking at all these trees. And uh, I'm like, wow, these are amazing trees. I wasn't even – I was high, right? But I'm like, these are great trees. I go back inside and your mother's sitting there. I say – I cannot believe how many beautiful trees there are here. And she asks, oh, I thought you were going to say beautiful women. That's what I thought you were going to say, beautiful women. What are you talking <laughs> about, trees? I like, because she thinks I'm a pornographer. She's like, I can't appreciate trees. And I'm not a pornographer. And the reason why she thinks I'm a pornographer also is because there's a sex scene in, in the movie where you you're on the receiving end of some sex. And um, she didn't want to watch it because of that. Okay, but let's talk about the, I, I mean, all joking aside, Wow. Right? Like, your parents have really been supportive. I remember at one time recently you were living in their basement. Not recently. It was, well, it was within the last 10 years. You had to move back in for a second. No, no. I've, I've been with, yeah, I've been with Caitlin for 10 years. We've been here. So it's probably 12 okay. years ago. But still, I mean, I'm not saying you live with your parents' basement. Yeah. That was just between apartments and stuff. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they could be any more supportive than they were. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky even just in the sense that, uh, my parents have a basement that I could stay in if I needed it to, you know, like, because there are some people 
when the whole bottom falls out from underneath you in this in this music business they have no one um and they've they've always supported me um doing music through like there's been ups and downs and um and you know they're they're we're all you know uh or people <laughs> you know we just but i if but we're just like focused on being happy so i think that that's you know kind of the the thing it doesn't take much for that um as long as we have the basic things we need um but my parents are great um they've always been you know they were the ones booking me they were the ones bringing all their friends to my shows when we started out and the last show my mom went to was the one we did right after dave noise passed away that we did at aura and that was the last show uh she came out to but um she really liked it and um i just haven't really played around here we had the pandemic and all that stuff so but do they listen to your music do you, do you think they're well versed in your catalog mm, no not really i i think um my dad does sometimes when he can get his computer to work <laughs> uh he'll go and he'll watch something um but my mom her hearing is really bad she's very deaf um but she you know likes music and sometimes she can hear you perfect um and you wonder if it's just all a a ruse so she can get you to spill the the beans <laughs> i don't know um I, i'd love to talk about dave noise for a little bit here yeah so one back back to the movie like there's a point in the movie where i wanted you to emote a little bit more and this i can't remember what year we made the movie it was like 2013 i think probably right Right, and I want you to emote more. I think who knows what scene it was. You did great. I'm not dissing you now, but there was a moment where I I wanted you to do it a little more, and I, I'm like, come on, like think of like the worst thing that's ever happened right at that point, and you're you're screwing with me a little bit, but you were like, doo, doo, doo. like nothing bad has ever happened to me right. at that point, and you couldn't tap into that right. Meanwhile, I'm carrying the burden of the world on me. So, like, I can tap into that actor-wise at any point. Like, I'm like, oh, right. I'm just sad anyways. <laughs> but um, that was, like, a refreshing attitude. Like, oh, I don't have that sadness to tap into. And then five years passed, and then uh, Dave Noyes, uh, our beloved musician, artist, dude, died, took everybody by surprise, devastated everybody. Yeah. Like super sad. I, I mean, I know there's been other trials in your life since, and other thing, uh, but I mean that was a huge impact. And now that you can look at it through a lens, like what 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 happened to Rustic when Dave Noyes passed away, and, and what does that mean? I just associated the creative process uh, so much with this intimate rapport with Dave Noyes. Uh, this like this trust that like he's going to do something that is the most interesting and the most sophisticated to my music, which was very simple. Um, you know, just, I would write with, you know, simple power chords and I was, you know, raised listening to like punk bands and the clash. And it was his addition to that, that made rustic have like, I don't know, kind of like an expensive sound or like sophisticated sound. Um, big band too, big band sound. Like just, the, I mean, right. Not only his contribution as the horn, but you know the way he 
wrote everything to accompany everybody's parts, right? Yeah. I mean, or other people's parts. And it, I don't know. It's just um, we're going to be doing we're going to be doing some rustic shows, but we're going to do them few and far between, so that everybody involved uh, is. Uh, just appreciative of the moment and it's a special moment it's not something we do every month down at a bar in the old port to make money right right dave noise night is like battle of the bands battle of dave noise's bands like every every week you do a different dave noise band right yeah that kind of stuff we're just not doing because dave noise was in i believe at last time he was in like 740 bands <laughs> yeah you've been in a lot of bands too but not as many as dave he would have us playing at these, you know, like pubs and stuff where the gig was not memorable at all, but sitting at a table like a family and having a hamburger with Dave Noyes before the show was memorable or having like a beer after the show with him or like teaching him how the internet works um, was always hilarious. He was so smart and yet so, you know, uh, detached sometimes from like the goings-ons of humanity. But obviously the dude was a musical genius. We can talk all day about that. It was way above my pay grade understanding why he was able to make us feel the way we do about his music and how we would physically respond a lot of times to the his 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 magic. Well, for Rustic, he was at one point, he was our manager, our booking agent, he made our merchandise by hand. Screen printing, right. Uh, he was our accountant. He was our um, person out there shopping us to um, try to get our stuff on movie soundtracks and stuff like that. He was out shopping us to agents and managers. Um, he was saving up the money and budgeting our releases and our merch. Um so like when we need to make more CDs, he would do all the inventory. He paid the space. He paid for the the van, the van payments. Um, he paid us a certain amount every week and took some aside and set it into a bank account. So we would always have money in our savings and we would have very good credit. Um, he did all that stuff and he was a musical genius. <laughs> Just so I can get a good Spencer story in there. It's like, what, what, am I correct in remembering this, that when Dave died and it was maybe at the Great Lost Bear, you, you walk in and like everybody's mourning, everyone's crying and, and, and Spencer's there. And he turns and sees you and he says, it should have been you. <laughs> yes. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been you. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> it's funny though it's funny it is it's also it's, a good it's, also my, it's yeah it's my uh type of humor oh without a doubt i don't even want to share your type of humor we're trying to stay away from that but there's so many good <laughs> jokes that would work for you that just is not appropriate at all another great rustic show and actually it was my wife and i's first date right and that's the thing as a mainer everybody that's aware of music in maine from a certain age so you know i'm in my mid-50s so maybe even 60 years old down to their 20s. So like any Mainer who's aware during this, you know, 30-year period, I hate to say that, buddy, that's 30 years at least. Oh, it's been more like 40, really. 40 years. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh. Anyways, we all have like these super memories connected to it. So that was what I was about to say. It's like my wife and I's first date was at a rustic show. 
So I'm like, I'm going to go on this date with this chick. I'm not going to buy rustic tickets. I'm just going to get on the guest <laughs> list. So I, I call and I get put on the guest list. And my friend Darian Brahms, or our friend Darian Brahms, mm-hmm. uh, she gets put on the guest list too because she's thinking of possibly going to that show. And this show is at the State Theater, and it was your final show, It was, right? This is 2001. Right, right. You guys were quitting because it was over. So we get to the theater to get in. And uh, I say, yeah, I got tickets here, uh, Crashberry, and they open the envelope, and there's only one ticket. All <laughs> <laughs> right, there's one ticket. It's not a plus one. It was just one for me. I'm like, oh, there's supposed to be another ticket here, and they're like, no, this is the only ticket, and the show sold out. And I'm like, I- I'm looking for like Zoidas, right? I end up seeing Brad, Joe Cosmo. And I'm like, hey, Joe, like, yeah. hey, I- and he's like, oh, dude, I don't know any of that. How are you? Gonna-? And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what the odds are of Darian actually showing up tonight. So I said. Oh, I have my other ticket. It's in Darian Brahms. And they opened up yeah. Darian Brahms' envelope and gave me Darian's ticket, and we were able to go in. Had a great show. You guys were amazing in that show. I mean, you're amazing so many times. I got this hot date, though, right? I'm with this, like, gorgeous woman who I'm about to fall in love with and eventually marry and spend the rest of my life with. And I know my way around the State Theater, and after the show is going to be over, I'm going to be able to get out of here without the bottleneck, the crowds, the stinky, sweaty dirty getting out of the state theater thing so the show ends i hustle her out the back boom down daring street bring her to a bar later on we have our first kiss oh that's nice meanwhile i didn't know that you guys like <laughs> like you took the show out into congress street right like at, yeah you shut down downtown portland and you were was there a piano out there or keyboard or something yeah we had a we had a pump organ that kind of works like an accordion but you pump it with your feet yeah and uh, acoustic instruments upright and the horns and drums. But the police, without us warning them or anything, they just blocked off the street for like a 30-minute encore outside. Um, and no one complained and everyone was psyched and, you know. Wow. I missed it. <laughs> you were at yeah. the bar on Deering Street. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Again, I keep keeping going back to Dave Norris, but he left for that period when you guys were when you were going with the labels. Was that when? Yeah, just some of the conversations that we had with the labels, things that uh, just like shady people. Um, there are people that you know. I kind of wrote about it a, little, a few days ago. Um, that compared our record coming out to the birth of their child, and they'd be incredibly insincere, and it was kind of like gross. And like, we didn't fall for it at all. We were just like, you're weird and manipulating. And that whole kind of scene is what made Dave get out of it. Um, and then we didn't really have much more of that um, without Dave um, because we were out of that situation pretty soon. And then, you know, he came back. Never, He never sold out. Yeah. He was, you know. Are the records, <laughs> are your records selling? do you are you what's what's that like as a musician now i mean because you're um, not selling cds really you know we buy CDs. yeah it's i don't even i don't even really gauge that anymore i it's usually just like follows and likes and um you know for the stuff where you're selling your music or whatever i do a lot more in the the way of i create other people's music and then let them go sell it right um so pretty much when I don't have COVID like I do now and I'm not doing gigs, I'm usually pretty much every day of the week working on something with some artist or um, writing something just to have in my catalog. You're constantly compelled to write anyways. I know that. 
the worst torture for you would be to take away your ability to write something down, and then you would still right. me- commit it to memory just by saying it a bunch of times. <laughs> are there certain songs now that you just you don't sing anymore that you just are like, oh, I sang these too much? Are, are there any rustic songs that that happen to? Um, no, not really. I mean, the only thing with some of the rustic songs that um, I, we don't do anymore is because sometimes they just had really distinctive, like simple song as the distinctive organ thing on there. That's because we carried around uh, a thousand pound B3 organ every night. That's very much part of that, the sound of that song. Um, and it, we just, it's hard to recreate, um, especially in like an environment. If I were playing like solo or something, um, some of those songs were so dense with very specific sounds that they're hard to recreate. Um, but there's really nothing that I'm like so ashamed of that I wouldn't play. I mean, even stuff, the older I get, the more into my early, early catalog, I can start to appreciate it now where I couldn't for a while. It made me really insecure. Wow. Cause that's some really great stuff in there. I was listening. I mean, I don't want to blow your head up there, but for a little boy, you were a young man. They really aged well. I mean, your lyrics are tight and your poet. I mean, you're a poet. You're not. Oh, thanks. This rock thing is a poser thing. <laughs> when you're long gone, hopefully there'll be a, a dusty tome in college libraries of the collected verse of David Erlene Gutter. <laughs> right? <laughs> My middle name works in that context. That's like the only time the literary classic David Erlene Gutter. I think you could do it. I'm. I love your writing, anyways. Your regular writing. I'm. I know I, there are times I know that you've, you've started writing stuff. I'd love to see more writing, but yeah, I just think you're, you know, talented. I love hanging out with writers, and I love bouncing my ideas off writers. I think that um, not a lot of people in my line of work do that enough, where they're trying to impress someone who has a re- more refined part of, of what you're doing kind of you know what i mean i love i loved working with him the the movie and i just love hanging out with you and i'm you're supposed to be coming out here you come out here when just don't bring covid with you because yeah, no. i've been covid free you know <laughs> um so what, what do you have going on is there anything you want to talk about coming up i know you got some events uh that you're playing yeah the the all roads festival all roads festival in belfast and then the army festival is the festival that um rustic is going to be doing our once a year special show. Um, and then also my solo band's playing there. Um, John's band Love by Numbers is playing. Um, it's like just going to be a big fun time with everybody. Where's that festival? Uh, that's at Threshers in Searsmont. It's like a camping out kind of thing. I, I'm doing Harry's Hill this year too. Oh. <laughs> I get a Harry's Hill date. I'll, I'll tell you about it when I find out. I'm going after different targets these days but when it was weed and i was in writing about weed there's no place like harry's hill some of those experiences there there was a lot of a lot of weed <laughs> yeah sketch i remember one show you did there that i took some mushrooms at i couldn't believe how great it was you were so awesome i think i went up on stage and gave you a joint or something like that yeah yeah you definitely did and i was tripping uh june 25th we're back at harry's hill june 25th and it's uh Dave Gutter and the, because we change our name every show. I, I noticed that. It was Male Pattern Eagles? Yep. Eagles? Okay. Who's in that band? Uh, it's 
Scott Moeller, Ryan Curlis, Dick Curlis's grandson. Okay. Um, yeah. Cam Jones from Weekend Friends. Yeah. Um, and Augustus Perkins, who is, uh, he was down east. Um, and then he lived in Los Angeles for a while and worked at a studio out there. And he just came back like within the last two years. Um, I haven't heard any of this band. What is that like? That's great. Um, it's super fun. Um, two guitars, keyboard, bass, drums. Cam Jones plays bass. Wow. Um, we do a lot of, um, it's really stripped down uh, to kind of pare away these little pockets so I can be more like storytelling wow. and and kind of put the lyrics. So we're, we try to be as patient as possible and as dynamic as possible. Um, it's a really fun project though. Um, it's, we perform all the stuff from the visual album I put out last year. I've been here a while. I was going to say something about that album. Yeah. And then we have a follow-up that we're doing. Um, we're recording, uh, and filming a record at the same time, like live in the studio. Wow. Um, so it'll both be a movie of us, um, kind of going through some of the songwriting and producing process but then just doing the songs, however many takes it takes, you know, we'll just use the the best one, but just to have an album that's kind of live in the studio with some of the, the process and stuff, a little breaking the fourth wall a little bit. You like to add levels of difficulty to everything. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so it's not like you want to make a film or just a record. You want to make a film of the record at live. What's with the changing the name of the band all the time? Uh, I like to make things difficult. <laughs> <laughs> is that some postmodern thing? Yeah, I like it because also the merch uh, is like different things. Like sometimes it can be, it can sound like a heavy metal band, like Dave Gutter and the Night Taras, because my dog's name's Tara. And, uh, you know, that could be like with like claws and like, you know, some crazy thing. Um, and then something else could be like for all roads where Dave Gutter and the Yonder. <laughs> so I picture like a horizon. I picture like maybe we jam a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow that's that's really interesting that you pull that off well uh maybe after the harry's uh show because our house is on the way home you can stop right? here and stay here so you don't have to drive back you can bring the band if you want that sounds great Th that's in june you said right june 25th dude i love you i love you too thanks for talking about my uh creativity i love hearing about your creativity well it means a lot coming from someone so creative thanks man um, I'm speaking on behalf of all Mainers. It's just been so great to watch uh, you progress as an artist, but also never give up, right? Like he, Dave Gutter will never give up. <laughs> it's true. It's just inspiring. Oh, thanks. Dave Gutter, ladies and gentlemen, check him out whenever you can. Bye-bye. Thanks, buddy. You just leave? This seems awkward.
this oxycontin we need a new placebo these drugs are way too legal the doctor wrote prescriptions it can't be so addictive but we just need them for a reason we can go on living there might be side effects you might feel out of breath or something serious experiencing life or death make you break out in hives or make you take your lives or maybe make it so that nothing ever makes you cry so much to Dave Gutter for that very informative and entertaining, I hope, conversation. You can see and hear Dave and his band with the ever-changing name on Saturday, May 20th at the All Roads Music Festival in Belfast, Maine. And then on June 25th, Dave will be playing at Harry's Hill in lovely Starks, Maine. And then on August 4th, Rustic Overtones will be playing at the Army Music Festival at Threshers in Searsmont. That's a weekend-long event, August 4th and 5th. And Dave's Unnamed Man will also be playing. Check out those shows. All are guaranteed to be a great time. And if you'd like to support the Crash Program and keep it commercial-free, please consider becoming a Patreon There's various levels of monthly giving that provide various perks and special meetups. Visit Crashberry.com for all the details, plus links to Sex, Drugs, and Blueberries, the film, and the novel. He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, 